Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and in-depth with each month's cover story author. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit membership organization with the mission of empowering people through chess one move at a time. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, discounted chess books and equipment, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. Now, let's get into this month's edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. So we are here for our second edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. And joining us is Al Lawrence, who wrote our cover story in the May issue of Chess Life, the Spirit of the Teams, which covers the U.S. Amateur Team East Championship. Al has an extensive chess resume. In fact, I'm only going to scratch the surface of it uh, in this introduction and let him talk a little bit more about what he has done. Al is the Managing Director of the U.S. Chess Trust. He's the Chair of the U.S. College Chess Committee. He's been the Chess Journalist of the Year twice once in 2000 and again in 2016, probably of more direct interest to Chess Life readers. He's been our monthly columnist for Faces Across the Board. He also is the bi-monthly columnist for Chess Life Kids with Chess Kids Across the Board. Al is especially enthusiastic about his work as managing director of the U.S. Chess Trust, a charity organization that supplies needy school community programs and veterans with official sets and boards, along with providing scholarships and administering the Samford Fellowship, which provides a stipend to America's most promising players with the goal of winning the world championship. Visit www.uschesstrust.org for more information and to apply for help with your program. But as I said, this only scratches the surface. So welcome, Al, to the show. Hi, Daniel. Thank you. So tell us more about your U.S. chess experience, which goes back to 1981, I believe, including uh, being appointed the U.S. chess executive director in 1988. That's right. I I served as executive director of U.S. chess from 1988 to 1995, and that was after serving as assistant and associate director uh, from 1981 to 1988. You know, know, before that... uh, Really, I have to give credit to my brother. He taught me the game. A lot of people have that story. I have an older brother named Leo who taught me how to play chess. You know, it was just one of the games of childhood. Later on, when I was in college, um, I was fortunate to be um, coaxed into going to a simultaneous exhibition, even though at the time I didn't know what it was, given by Elliot Hurst. And so that's when I started to find out about chess, and that was 1966. Later on, as a high school teacher in 1971, I organized uh, one of the teams in the old National Chess League, where we played by telephone. And I remember we played in a car dealership on Sunday. It was closed, but people used to rap on the windows, hoping that we could tell them what a list price is on one of the cars. So, go back a ways. Yeah, it absolutely sounds like it. And so, what about some of the books you've written? Well, you know, uh, I've written uh, probably about a dozen books. Some of them on my own, but the best ones are with uh, um, Grandmaster Lev Albert uh, and his uh, comprehensive chess course. And we're very proud of one of the books that um, really condenses uh, the first seven books of that course. And uh, it's really a great review for people. Uh, It's also a great learning book that takes you 
really through all the essential knowledge you need to be an expert. And that's chess for the gifted and busy. And it's still out there in the bookstores and still available. And, and uh, we revise it uh, periodically. And of course, Lev Albert is our monthly columnist in Chess Life as well with his Back to Basics column. And three-time U.S. champion, three-time Ukrainian champion, and uh, and a, uh, a very nice person to boot. Well, if we're just going to talk about his minor credits, sure, we can include that. <laughs> <laughs> so in this month's story, it, it can be very hard to cover the same event year after year. But you've written about the U.S. Amateur Team East for many years now for Chess Life. And every year, you're able to make it fresh and interesting. And I think the reason is kind of hinted at in your opening line in this year's report where you wrote, every year the World Amateur Team Championship rekindles many a wayward courtship of tournament chess. Tell us a little bit more uh, about that and what is it that keeps the East so fresh and interesting every year? You, you know that it's uh, both my biggest pleasure and my biggest challenge, literally my biggest challenge to write about this tournament every year, to try to capture it. And, and my, my opening sentence uh, it has to do with, uh, well, any of us who are, who are in love with an activity, um, uh, we, we know that that activity really demands always more than we can give. In other words, things demand, pursuits demand perfection, and uh, humans don't have that. They don't have the capability, whether it's uh, tennis or soccer or, or chess. And um, so in chess, those of us who love tournament uh, play, you know, we can get discouraged. Uh, something could go wrong. We're not having a good day. Maybe we have two or three bad tournaments. We're playing there by ourselves. It's just us. And then all of a sudden, once a year, um, there's a tournament that goes beyond us and calls us back. And I think literally there must be hundreds of U.S. chess members uh, that come back, renew their membership. Uh, in fact, I know that there, there are many that renew their membership just to play in this one tournament. Um, it, it's hard to describe uh, the camaraderie um, and the interactions that take place at this tournament. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's bigger than the Olympiad, um, which happens every two years. Of course, the U.S. Amateur Team East, the World Amateur, happens every year. Um, and it's, it's got more teams, more people. Um, than the Olympiad, even if you count both the open and the women's sections. So it is. It's a uh, it's a comeback for many to the to the romance of chess. You know, to this pursuit, this uh, harsh mistress that is chess, that is tournament chess, um, and uh, uh, the things that attract people back are many of the hearts that are things that are hard to describe uh, about the tournament. The interactions. Uh, one of the things that's hard to capture is what goes on between rounds in the hotel, you know, in the restaurant, in the bar, um, where grandmasters are having a beer next to club players. Uh, and we're all on the same level and we're, 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 we're talking about our games. And you, we've, we've referenced the World Amateur Team Championship a couple of times now. Is there a technical difference between the World Amateur Team and the U.S. Amateur Team East? No, it was um, – uh, the U.S. Amateur Team um, started out, I think, as just the U.S. Team, and then eventually it took on the U.S. Amateur Team because the rating way back then, I think, was kept 
at an average of under 2,100. Now it's under 2,200. But at some point, the U.S. Chess Federation granted it uh, the prestige because it is the biggest and most successful tournament uh, in the U.S., uh, and it it was granted the prestige of being called the World Amateur um, Team Championship, as well as the U.S. Team East. Now, you know, it, it wasn't um, until my era that the tournament was actually uh, franchised into regions, which I think is a great move. It gave it gave more people in in more areas the chance to enjoy team play. Team play is rare, and team play is, uh, I think, the most exciting um, and rewarding kind of tournament play because you're not just playing for yourself. You're you're playing for your team. So tell us more about that because there's a lot of people in the U.S. Chess Federation who may have played many rated games but who have never played in a team event. What are the specific differences about a team event, uh, how boards are paired, you know, playing white and black, all of that. Well, you know, the um, it's four-person team, four-player team, as most teams are. Uh, you're allowed to bring an alternate, but your first four boards um, have to be rated under 2,200. Uh, I think this year's winner was actually 2,199.75. So you can, you can really crowd uh, the 2200, but it has to be under. So you can combine that um, in, in any way you want. Uh, the only rule is that you can't have more than two grandmasters on a team. So you can have an evenly balanced team, those kinds of teams of one, you know, where maybe you have a master or a high-ranking master on board one and then strong experts, uh, the other three boards. Also teams of one that have had, uh, that are top-heavy, that had uh, three very strong players and then uh, – um, a player that's a, a weaker club player on board four. So there are different strategies. Now, um, the colors alternate so that if you're white on board one in the pairing, then you're black on board two and white on board three and black on board four. You also, you had mentioned the, uh, the regional split and I should let our listeners know that, uh, the West East or the West North and South events are also covered in chess life, uh, this month with different authors for it. Um, so what was the first year that you attended the East Al? You know, this is very hard, uh, for me to remember. I, I would think that it would be something like 1982, um, and we had a team uh, for years um, that I really enjoyed playing on. It was uh, it was really captained by our uh, by our chess life editor Fairfield Hoban H O B A N. And uh, back then there was a sitcom that was still popular that we played off for the title of our t- name of our team, uh, which was Hoban's Zeros. Of course, it was a reference to the old Hogan's Heroes. Um, naming a team. Um, is uh, a very important facet of uh, of the uh, of the event, and you even get a prize uh, for uh, the most popular name each year. It's very frequently topical and even political. Um, sometimes it's punished. This year, I believe the name was uh, Rui Lopez got deported. <laughs> uh, the and the actual winners of the event were the. It was a team from Carnegie Mellon University. That's right. Yeah, and it was certainly when you hear Carnegie Mellon, that's a team that sounds uh, that just sounds smart and accomplished, just just by virtue of their name. Oh, sure, and they they all were smart. You know, Carnegie Mellon, I believe, was um, was the school of the um, the the students who first put together the 
uh, thought, which became Deep Blue, which eventually uh, became uh, champ, you know, defeated the first world champion, Gary Kasparov, after it was taken over by, by other ownership. You mentioned earlier uh, Elliot Hurst. Now, you, you have many hats in each issue of Chess Life, and this, this issue you also wrote an obituary of Elliot Hurst. Tell us a little bit about him, uh, your personal relationship with him, and what readers will find in this obituary. Well, well you know, uh, Elliot Hurst isn't a name you hear about very much. Uh, I, I'm very interested in the, in, in, the, in the great players and the leaders of our organizations in the 1950s and 60s. They, they were, some of them were really characters. Of course, we have characters now, but um, El- Elliot Hurst uh, was um, a top player who, um, like Ruben Fine, uh, gave up uh, uh, chess really uh, to be a psychologist, only he was a research professor, professor of psychology. And, and his first academic job after, uh, after many other important jobs uh, was as a professor at the University of Missouri um, back in the, in the, in the mid-60s when I was there. Um, and that's actually, I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know anything about organized chess. And as I said, I, I attended this uh, simultaneous exhibition given by him. Uh, I did it two years in a row. And by the second year, uh, you know, I was hooked. Uh, and subsequent to that, many years later, when he wrote his book on blindfold chess, you know, I, I was able to, uh, to rekindle our relationship and I remember that he uh, he always signed off his emails with uh, he still did it cheers for old Mizzou, even though it had been you know 50 years. He was a top player, and he was also had the most popular column in Chess Life called uh, Chess Kaleidoscope, where he wrote about uh, all kinds of things. and And I think the hallmark of his writing uh, was wit and humor. Uh, I give a few examples uh, this month in in, uh, in his opinion. What's also interesting is that Andy Soltis, who is uh, probably our, our most popular columnist in Chess Life, uh, indicated that uh, Chess Kaleidoscope kind of influenced him and made him want to be a chess columnist himself. That's right. Andy says that that it made him want to write for Chess Life. And he's been doing so for, uh, you know, 40 years now. So uh-huh. it was it was a long-lasting inspiration. Another interesting thing uh, about this obituary, uh, her son, Andrew, sent us a photo to use of Elliot with playing Bobby Fischer in 1962. And this was a photo that I don't recall ever seeing before. So I think you'll find it interesting, readers and listeners, when you when you take a look at this in the May edition. Yeah, it's a great great picture. And so tell us a bit about Faces Across the Board. Uh, you've been doing this column in Chess Life. It's, it appears in our first moves section for some time where we take a look at one player doing something of note or of interest each month. You, you know, that, that column is a, a joy to me because I get to uh, meet and really, you know, talk on a um, more than uh, superficial level on uh, on dozens and dozens of, of members of, of all ages. Um, I, I remember, uh, in like any other interview-based uh, piece, sometimes it can be a little tough to get going, you know. You think, well, this person was recommended to me as uh, somebody very interesting and, and you know, so far, uh, you know, nice guy, can't, can't figure out... Uh, an angle on this. That was my very first, I think my very first column. And right at the end, the gentleman said, uh, 
Oh, you know, that, that was right after I disarmed the nuclear warhead. And I thought, you know, you just got to keep asking the right questions. Everybody's got a good story. And uh, that's one thing it's taught me. Now, uh, the other thing is there's so many, so many youngsters these days that are surpassing uh, what, uh, you know, what we thought was possible uh, for young people to play chess. I mean, many of, many of the young players I talk to are on the U.S. chess uh, top list. And uh, it's, it's very interesting then just a you know, few le- years later to see them uh, you know, playing in a junior championship or something like that. But there's always an interesting story. Everybody out there has had some chess experience, you know, uh, that can be either amusing or that we can empathize with. It's a column I enjoy doing every month. And listeners, if you're interested in participating or if you have a recommendation to us for someone who could appear in this column, please write to us at faces at uschess.org. Um, and this that also goes for our Chess Life Kids column, Chess Kids Across the Board. Tell us a little bit about that, which is a brand new column. It's only run in two issues, I believe now, Al. Sure. That's another one I, I love doing. I, I like to talk to the, the really young players about uh, how they got started in the chess, you know, they're, uh, it always turns out, or it turns out <laughs> almost always, that their, their parents are really so supportive. You know, we talk about soccer parents, you know, well, they've got nothing on uh, chess parents who are sometimes on the road uh, uh, with the kids uh, almost every weekend, taking them to a tournament because they love playing chess so much, the kids do, and the parents see how wonderful it is for them and how, how it brings them along in other areas. And then I also enjoy talking and documenting the other interests of, of the, the, the kids who are, are playing chess because they, they're not one-dimensional. They have a lot of other interests, and, and a lot of them have a lot of interest in, in good work in their community, in their school, whether it's bringing chess to, um, to other people or, or working for him in other ways. So it's really rewarding. It's a rewarding column for me to write. And I think it's become a very popular feature in Chess Life Kids. So we're, we're, it's been a worthy addition. Um, so going back to the East, I'm, I'm kind of starting a monthly idea here, kind of calling left on the cutting room floor, because you know we always have the tyranny of the printed inch, and there's always good material that can't make it into the magazine. Was there anything you wanted to include in this in this year's uh, uh, edition of the U.S. Amateur Team East story that just couldn't make it in? Well, you know, there, there isn't every story. And, and the, the U.S. team is a particular challenge in that because there's so much that goes on constantly. You know, it's three days. Uh, it's not it's top-level chess. It's very competitive. But there's also so much fun that goes in between it. It's really a three-ring circus. And, and the fellow that makes it all happen is the ringmaster. It's, uh, you know, Steve Doyle who has now, uh, what is it, 48 years of service? I think I have that just about right. Four, I'm sorry, 43 years of service with the event. And uh, it, it's, it's really hard to work in and to describe adequately, you know, the, the way he emcees the event with comic timing and uh, um, serious when you need to be serious. But he, he runs this event on schedule with wit, with humor, and you, you have this whole combination of great chess, camaraderie, humor, contests. You know, there's a, a skit contest. There's an adult skit contest. There's a kid's skit contest. 
there's costume contests, there's the best name contest, all this with with audience participation. It's like the old days where, you know, they take the loudest applause to determine the winner. Uh, and again, I have to say that then even away from the, the tournament room, and every room in the hotel is filled up. I mean, you had, um, what, 326 teams, uh, some of them with five members. So you have nearly 1,400 people. And they're all interacting between rounds. Uh, and the, and uh, the egalitarian sort of mixture of grandmasters, international masters, masters, sea players, all sharing, you know, all sharing their, their, uh, their chess, what they like about chess, their moves, asking questions. It's, it's, uh, it's a challenge every year to try to give a taste of the tournament. And I, I want to mention that this year, for the first time in a long time, you know, uh, the uh, U.S. Chess Executive Director, Carol Meyer, came and visited the team and spent some time and addressed the uh, crowd before the second round. But also, she, uh, she stayed around and, and, and met a lot of players, which is something you can definitely do there. So that was very nice to, to see the recognition uh, for the event. And, and thank you for mentioning that. It certainly doesn't hurt me to have my boss mentioned on the show. Well, okay. Well, she deserves to be mentioned. <laughs> I, I agree. So was there any last last thoughts about the East that you want to share? <laughs> well, you know, um, I, I, I've got a story that almost took me. It's a story of almost how I, I stopped, you know, I stopped in my chest tracks as soon as I was uh, getting started. I, I was a pretty new assistant director, and the boss assigned me to uh, take a look at the proposal for, I think it must have been the 1981 uh, or 82 uh, U.S. amateur team before it was East, before when there was only one. And, um, you know, it was they had just added, uh, they had just made the limit 2,200 rather than 2,100. And, and I don't know where they overlooked it or they didn't want to do it, but uh, the only thing I thought about this, this tournament uh, proposal that, you know, is well-tuned. I mean, they've they were developing this tournament over decades in, in New Jersey and found this wonderful recipe. But they now had the 2200 prize and a 2000 division prize and no 2100 prize. And so I had written a pretty mild memo saying, you know, well, um, think we, uh, I think the only thing I can think of to add is uh, this 2100, under 2100 prize. And I think it's just probably overlooked because they just expanded the upper limit. Well, um, somehow that got translated in, in, um, and understood as some kind of a, a challenge. And actually, uh, um, quite a number of powerful people uh, felt that I, I needed to be fired. <laughs> that's that's how you know when you have a baby and somebody criticizes your baby sometimes your immediate reaction isn't totally rational i guess but you know but you know it all it it, it all worked out and then uh, the following year i was a little embarrassed because hoban zeros won that under 2100 prize <laughs> <laughs> all works out at the end uh in our favor. And Al, you know, thank you so much for joining us. You're, you're one of the really good guys in chess, not just, not just a player, but a promoter, a volunteer, chess professional. You, you do it all. And readers, if this hasn't whetted your appetite to pick up this month's issue and, and read more in depth 
about the amateur team East and the West, South, and North events. I don't know what will. Thank you so much for joining us, Al. Oh, thank you, Dan. Please continue all your great work on Chestnut. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So now it's time for our monthly segment, Checking In with Jen, where we talk to our senior digital editor, Jennifer Shahadi, who's joining us from uh, the St. Louis Chess Club, where she's in the midst of broadcasting the U.S. championships. As we record this, it's the rest day there. Jennifer's going to be talking to us about what's hot on our website, uschess.org, as well as social media for the month of May. So, Jennifer, welcome back. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be with you again. So, what's what, we shouldn't talk too much about the U.S. championship because by the time this airs, we will have already crowned a champion. So, let's just jump into what's happening in May on uschess.org. Well, what we're going to have is the elementary nationals, and also we're going to have some features on the champions after they've been crowned. Um, Eric Rosen's actually going to be doing some takeovers for us at the national elementary championships. The last time he did our Twitter takeover, it was at the Pro Chess League finals in San Francisco. And I just wrote a piece about that on the website where I talked about how innovative the event was, and also about an event that I did in Oakland at the OMCA Museum, where I had a panel with Adisa of the Hip Hop Chess Federation and Rochelle Ballantyne on hip hop women in chess. So it's been a really exciting time for me between that trip to California and now being in St. Louis. With the elementary coming up, we've we've had some interesting uh photos coming out of the uh, various events, like the junior high school cha- uh, championship. Uh, the photographer on site there, Jim Doyle, had an especially good one of cheering kids. Oh, yeah, that was fantastic. So basically, the kids were cheering on Fabiano Caruana, who is our new world championship challenger, um, heads up undisputed title, which he's going to be facing Magnus Carlsen for in November. And it's funny because the last time I talked to you, Um, Fabi was doing well, but he hadn't yet clinched that. So it's so exciting to be on the phone with you a few weeks later and be able to say that, that we've got our our first undisputed uh, world championship challenger since Bobby Fischer. So in that photo where all these kids are cheering and celebrating, they're rooting on Fabi and they actually also signed a card, like massive amounts of cards, um, wishing him good luck. And we're going to continue on with that in the elementary nationals, which is, of course, our biggest national championship. Right. And uh, we're also going to be doing that same thing at the high school uh, event. Exactly. Yeah. So the high school students are also so strong. So they're clearly like following all of Fabiano's games. It's just so exciting, Dan, that we have uh, a world championship challenger who's also so relatable. No, absolutely. And and just the, the fact that it's been so long since we've had somebody competing as an American for the unified world championship title. Uh, it, it, it's just, we've been talking for years now about the embarrassment of riches that we have in American chess and what a golden age of American chess it is. And this is kind of just the, the crowning moment. Well, maybe not the crowning moment. It's one step from the crowning moment. Exactly. And that's what I'm always telling people. You know, Fabiano came on the U.S. championship show the other day and said that he doesn't care what other people think about his percentages. Um, He said in an interview with Peter Doggers on Chess.com that he thinks it's 50-50. 
Um, and I like those odds. I, you know, he's either going to win or he's going to lose. Fifty sounds like fifty-fifty to me. And I, I think he's got a really good chance. And just this, the whole rest of this year is going to be really exciting for U.S. Jazz. And we'll certainly be covering all that in both the magazine and on the website and various social media outlets. Um, and last month when we talked, uh, you were you were gearing up for coverage of the Pro Chess League, and Eric Rosen ended up getting uh, just an incredible photo from that event. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, the, the event itself was awesome because basically um, the audience could cheer the competitors on because uh, the players themselves were noise-canceling headphones. So that was super fun. And uh, obviously the team the team structure of the event led to lots of spirit. Um, Eric just captured a moment where everybody was celebrating at the end, um, the Armenian Eagles when they won. The Armenian team is just very spirited. Uh, you know, the Eagles, don't bet against them ever, Dan. <laughs> but the uh, yeah, Eric Eric shot, took a shot that ended up going viral. And you know who else was in San Francisco, which was really exciting, was Vanessa West. And, you know, I never get to really talk to her in person. And, you know, she's just such a phenomenal writer. Uh, she actually just wrote a piece uh, previewing the women's championship. Uh, she's especially got a, a strong interest in the women. And she's writing a piece for us that you can look up uh, about the tactics of the Pro Chess League final. So that's another fun element from the event. And we should tell the listeners a little bit more about Vanessa West. It makes it sound like she's a freelance writer, but she's actually a U.S. chess employee. Yeah, she's the digital assistant for the U.S. chess website. So you'll often see articles, like one of her specialties is articles where she kind of picks out the tactical highlights from major events. And she also does some of our social media stuff on Twitter at U.S. Chess and on Facebook at U.S. Chess. And she's a strong chess player herself. So she sometimes lets readers into her journey um, in competitive chess. Well, Jen, thank you very much for joining us and sharing all this exciting stuff again. Um, I look forward to talking to you again next month. And you're doing a fantastic job along with Yasser and Maurice on the, the broadcast for the, the U.S. Championship. And so again, when we talk to you next, we will have a U.S. Champion and we'll be looking forward towards the World Championship. It's really fun to be here, Dan. And uh, yeah, just keep posted with all that's going on on the website at US Chess on Twitter and on our Facebook. Great. Thank you very much, Jen. It's time for our cover trivia contest sponsored by US Chess Sales. Visit uscfsales.com for all of your chess book and equipment needs and receive a discount as a U.S. Chess member. To win a $50 gift certificate to uscfsales.com, send your answer to this month's contest to letters at uschess.org by May 18th. Now for this month's contest. The May issue of Chess Life has a cover that features two teams from the U.S. Amateur Team East. Often we have teams from the East on the cover of Just Life. The contest this month is, when was the last time a U.S. Chess employee actually was one of the members of the winning team at the U.S. Amateur Team East and as a result appeared on the cover of Chess Life magazine? If you think you know the answer, write to us at letters at uschess.org, give the issue month date and the employee name, 
We will then draw from all correct answers. Remember, the deadline to enter is May 18th. Now, for last month's contest, the question was, when was the last time we did a gatefold cover in Chess Life? Now, we had zero correct answers, but because it was our first podcast, maybe there weren't many of you that heard it. So we're going to extend that contest uh, to this month as well. So if you think and you know the last time that we did a gatefold cover on Chess Life, that's a cover that folds out into a double-sized cover, write to us at letters at uschess.org, give the issue month and year, and then we will draw from all correct answers. Again, the deadline to enter is May 18th, and good luck. Thank you for listening to the May edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month at the beginning of the month when we will be talking to Grandmaster Ian Rogers, who wrote our cover story about Fabiano Caruana's win at the Candidates Tournament. Thank you and good chess.